and welcome to this first of our series of litigation update podcasts. My name is Anna Pretoldi and I'm the partner responsible for litigation know-how here at Herber Smith Freehills. I have with me Maura McIntosh, who's a professional support consultant in the litigation team, as well as Chris Cox, who's a senior associate in the disputes team. So the plan for this series is to look at developments in civil procedure that we think will be of interest to in-house lawyers and others who deal with litigation in the English courts. Our main focus is going to be on case law, but we'll also cover important rule changes and the like. We intend to release a new episode every couple of months, focusing on the practical implications of the court's decisions, rather than looking in detail at the facts of each case. If you'd like further information on anything we discuss in the podcast, there are links on the podcast page to the relevant posts on our Litigation Notes blog. In this first edition, we're going to discuss disclosure and privilege, as there have been a lot of developments in this area in the past couple of months, particularly on privilege, which Maura and I will talk about, and then Chris will finish off by looking briefly at the disclosure pilot that's currently running in the business and property courts, which is now halfway into its two-year term. So to kick us off, Maura, uh, you're going to tell us about the Court of Appeal decision in Jet 2, uh, which I think came out at the end of January and which, well, in theory at least, has added a new element to the test for legal advice privilege. Yes, thanks, Anna. So the headline point from the decision is that the Court of Appeal found that legal advice privilege is subject to a dominant purpose test. So if you want to establish a claim for legal advice privilege, you have to show that the dominant purpose of the communication in question was to give or obtain legal advice. Now, a dominant purpose test is familiar in the context of litigation privilege, where it's long been the case that to benefit from the privilege, you have to show that a document was prepared for the dominant purpose of contemplated litigation. But I think it's fair to say that until this decision, and despite the court at first instance finding rather tentatively in favour of a dominant purpose test, that was, was not how the test for legal advice privilege was generally understood. Now, legal advice privilege, of course, requires a lawyer-client communication for the purpose of giving or obtaining legal advice. So there was always a, a purpose element, but that purpose has been interpreted very broadly in the case law. In particular, that legal advice is, is not limited to just telling the client the law, but it includes advice about what should be done in the relevant legal context. And that it's not just narrow requests for advice and the provision of advice that are covered, but it includes the whole back and forth of correspondence between lawyer and client, which is aimed at keeping them both informed so that the lawyer can advise and the client can give instructions as and when necessary. All of that's covered. And that broad concept of what falls within the purpose of legal advice has often been viewed as inconsistent with a, a dominant purpose test. But the good news is that I think it's pretty clear that the Court of Appeal wasn't trying to disturb that broad concept of legal advice. And in fact, it, it couldn't, even if it wanted to, as it was established by Court of Appeal in the classic case of Balabal and Air India, and confirmed as well by the House of Lords in Three Rivers Number 6, both of which were binding on the Court of Appeal in this case. So arguably, the decision in Jet2.com that the purpose of legal advice has to be dominant doesn't really add much to our understanding of legal advice privilege. The judge at first instance seems to have seen the dominant purpose test as particularly relevant to in-house lawyers who may have a, a dual role in the company. 
So if the dominant purpose of the communication to the lawyer is to obtain legal advice, then it's privileged. But if the dominant purpose is to obtain commercial views, then it's not. But but that was always the case anyway. It was clear there had to be a, a relevant legal context and the request for advice had to be received in the lawyer's legal capacity. If it was in an executive or commercial capacity, then privilege wouldn't be available. So again, I don't think anything has really changed in that regard as a result of the decision. Uh, I think well, one of the things I find puzzling about the decision on dominant purpose is that the court seems to have been heavily swayed by the fact that there's a dominant purpose test in litigation privilege. And so it thought the same should apply to legal advice privilege. But of course, litigation privilege applies to third party communications as well as those between law and clients. So, so obviously that there does need to be some limiting, fact, limiting factor, which is supplied by the dominant purpose test. But with legal advice privilege, it's only lawyer-client communications and client is understood in a very narrow sense following the Court of Appeals decision in Three Rivers Number 5. So it is only those within the client's organisation who are tasked with seeking the legal advice. So there's already a very significant limit on the application of legal advice privilege. Yes, and, and, and the court was also influenced by the fact that other common law jurisdictions such as Australia and Hong Kong apply a dominant purpose test to legal advice privilege. But um, in, in those jurisdictions, as I understand it, they, they just have the dominant purpose test. So there's, there's no requirement for a lawyer-client communication as well as there is under English law. So again, you can see how you need the dominant purpose as a, a limiting factor, which you don't need in the same way under English law. But anyway, it, it's obviously a court of appeal decision, so we'll have to accept that there's a dominant purpose test now for legal advice privilege, whether we think it's needed or not. And actually, one, one helpful aspect of the decision is that, like the court of appeal in the SFO and ENRC case 18 months ago that uh, received quite a lot of attention, that the court in Jet2.com was highly critical of the narrow Three Rivers Number 5 interpretation of, of client and said it wouldn't have followed that decision if it hadn't been bound to do so. Um, so, so that is helpful in adding to the weight of criticism of Three Rivers Number 5 at Court of Appeal level. But of course, any change in, in, in approach is going to have to wait for a suitable case to go up to the Supreme Court. Now, of course, another interesting area is the Court's discussion of how legal advice privilege applies in the context of emails sent simultaneously to both lawyers and non-lawyers. Of course, that's something that happens all the time in practice, particularly in an in-house setting. So, so it's an important question. Uh, so, can you tell us where the decision leaves us on that point? Yes, I'll I'll do my best. Unfortunately, that part of the decision is not at all easy to follow. So, what I'm what I say about it, subject to that disclaimer. But cutting through it all, I think what we can take from the decision, which in fact is the approach we have long supported, is that a, a multi addressee email should be looked at as if it were broken down into separate emails to each of the recipients. So looked at in that way is each email privileged. If the particular individual message is to a lawyer, then is it from the client in the narrow sense and is it seeking legal advice in, in the broad sense that we've discussed? If so, then it's privileged. But if not, so if say the lawyer's being asked for advice in a commercial capacity, then it's not privileged. And then separately, if the individual component, the individual email is to a non-lawyer, 
while emails between non-lawyers aren't normally privileged under the head of legal advice privilege, since there needs to be a lawyer-client communication. Unless, of course, the email reveals a privileged communication. So, for example, if it reports the legal advice received, or if the non-lawyer is copied on instructions to the lawyer. But if the non-lawyer is being asked for commercial views, then, of course, it's, it's not privileged. And so what if, when you look at them separately in that way, some of the components of the email would be privileged and, and some wouldn't? Well, the Court of Appeal basically seems to be saying that you can't get the benefit of privilege for an otherwise non-privileged communication just by including it in the same email as the privileged communication. So the result is that the, the non-privileged communication has to be disclosed. Now, in fact, the Court of Appeal suggests that the answer you arrive at in relation to multi-addressee emails will probably be the same, whether you look at the email as a single overall communication or as separate communications. And I, I think that's because if the email seeks commercial views, then in most cases you won't be able to say that the dominant purpose overall is to seek and obtain legal advice. I guess at best there, there may be a, a dual purpose. But I think looking at the decision, the ACID test really is meant to be the, the separate analysis of the individual communications comprised in the email rather than looking at the, the dominant purpose of the email as a whole. Thank you, Maura. I, I agree. It's not an easy case to digest on that point. I, I think there are aspects of the decision that can probably be pulled out in support of different approaches. So I expect there may well be argument on this in future cases. So moving on then to some other news on privilege, I want to mention a few cases about the circumstances in which privilege may be lost, or in fact not lost in these cases. The first is at Rafaisen, where the Court of Appeal agreed with the High Court that documents containing instructions to a lawyer regarding the holding and transfer of escrow monies were privileged and remained privileged despite the law firm having provided a confirmation to the counterparty as to the nature of its instructions. Now, the argument was that because of the confirmation, the instructions were no longer confidential. And since confidentiality is a prerequisite for privilege, privilege was lost. But that was rejected. The court held that just because a client authorises a lawyer to make a statement to a third party about its instructions, that doesn't mean the underlying communications containing the instructions are no longer confidential. The question is whether the client has authorised the lawyer to disclose those communications. Now, of course, that, that could be a fine line in some cases, so obviously caution is needed whenever statements are made to a counterparty about a lawyer's instructions. The decision also shows that privilege may be lost if a client puts in issue in the course of legal proceedings the content of the instructions to the lawyer. The example given is where a party alleges that its lawyer acted without authority in agreeing a settlement. This aspect of the decision was based on Australian authority and it seems to be a separate principle from the more familiar collateral waiver situation where a party deploys some of its privileged material in legal proceedings and so may be required to waive privilege more widely. It won't be allowed to cherry pick. But I think in practice, the two scenarios are likely to be closely linked. In the second case, the Tesco case, the question was whether Tesco had lost 
confidentiality and therefore privilege in a note of an interview between one of its senior in-house lawyers and its external lawyers. Tesco had provided the note to the SFO under a limited waiver of privilege and it was referred to by the SFO's counsel in open court in the course of a hearing in criminal proceedings against certain Tesco executives. The SFO's counsel had not only referred to the note, but had quoted one paragraph of it and summarised certain aspects, and had also invited the judge to read part of it, which he did. In the related civil proceedings against Tesco, the claimants argued that, in the circumstances, the note had lost confidentiality and therefore it was no longer privileged. But the judge rejected that argument. He described as a matter of degree the question of whether references to information contained in a document are sufficient to result in a loss of confidentiality in the document itself. On the facts of this case, the references weren't sufficient, either in terms of their detail or their extent. So that shows that a loss of confidentiality in some of the information contained in a privileged document will not necessarily mean a loss of confidentiality and therefore privilege in the document itself, which is helpful. Though there is a slightly odd and rather unclear suggestion in the judgment that the position may have been different if disclosure of the note had been essential to enable the public to understand the issue the court was considering in the criminal hearing. I say that's odd because privilege is an absolute rule. It is not something that can give way to competing public policy considerations. So if the references were not sufficient to mean that confidentiality was lost, that should, you think, be the end of the matter. But if this approach is adopted in, in other cases, it could increase the risk of a loss of privilege where material is referred to in that way. It's worth remembering, too, that this was not a case where the party entitled to the privilege, Tesco, had deployed the document in support of its case. It was the SFO's counsel that had referred to the documents. So there was no question of cherry-picking. And that brings me to the third case I want to mention, KMG International, where the question was whether a collateral waiver had arisen where the claimant stated in evidence in response to a strikeout application, that they had obtained Dutch law advice and the formulation of their Dutch law claim in the proceedings had been based on that advice. The judge found that this didn't give rise to a collateral waiver. That principle only applies if there's reliance on the content of a privileged document. If you're merely relying on the existence of the document or its effect, then the principle doesn't apply and here the judge found that the claimants were merely relying on the effect of the Dutch law advice. But, um, well, obviously that's a pretty fine distinction, so in practice it's best to avoid referring to legal advice in any evidence submitted to the court if at all possible. But if you do have to refer to advice, then it's worth thinking about whether you can walk that tightrope so as to rely on the effect of the advice rather than its content. So we're going to move on to disclosure now. Chris, uh, you've got a couple of cases to take us through regarding the disclosure pilot in the Business and Property Courts. For anyone who's not up on the detail of the pilot, 
we have done a couple of webinars explaining what's changed and there is a link to the most recent uh, webinar in November on the podcast page. Yes, both cases I want to mention involve applications for the disclosure of additional documents under the pilot. So the parties had already given disclosure and then one party was asking for an order that the opponent disclose further documents. This sort of application can be for documents the applicant says should have been disclosed under the original order, which is paragraph 17 of the pilot, or it can be for further documents that weren't covered by the initial order so that the disclosure order is effectively varied, paragraph 18 of the pilot. There are specific rules under the pilot for both scenarios. In either case, the court has to be satisfied that the order it's asked to make is reasonable and proportionate. Where the court is asked to vary the order, rather than just ensure compliance with the original order, it also has to be satisfied that it is necessary for the just disposal of the proceedings. The first case I want to mention is Mayer and Mayer. The claimant applied for an order that the defendants disclose their personal bank statements. The judge accepted that the failure to disclose these statements may have represented a failure adequately to comply with the original disclosure order, but he still declined to order disclosure. This was influenced by the fact that the claimant had waited several months before making the application after it knew the statements weren't being disclosed, and so a disclosure order would have involved distracting the parties in the run-up to trial, and the judge also seemed to have viewed the documents as being of fairly marginal relevance. But the key point from the case is the judge's focus on the new, stricter approach to specific disclosure applications. The claimant had relied on a statement in the practice direction which applies in non-pilot cases, which says that if the court concludes that a respondent to a specific disclosure application has failed to comply with the original order, it will usually make such order as is necessary to ensure that those obligations are properly complied with. The judge said that's no longer the case, as it's been overtaken by the specific provisions of the pilot and, in particular, the need to satisfy the court that the order is reasonable and proportionate. The other case to mention is Agents Mutual and Gascoigne-Holman, where the claimants argued that the defendant's searches should be conducted again by reference to additional search terms and date ranges the claimants had identified. The court rejected the application. The defendants had started with a document universe of more than 2 million documents, which were loaded onto an e-disclosure platform. That was reduced to 30,000 documents or so using defined date ranges and keyword parameters, and then only 95 documents were disclosed after a manual review. Despite the low number of documents disclosed, the judge wasn't satisfied there was a failure to comply with the disclosure order. The fact that only 95 documents were produced was not, in itself, a deficiency in the disclosure. In any given case, the judge said, there may simply be few relevant documents, And this wasn't a case where it was so obvious that documents of a certain type must exist that the failure to produce them showed a flaw in the process. The judge also rejected the criticism that the search terms were too narrow to ensure that all relevant documents were captured. That misunderstood the purpose of keyword parameters, which was to reduce an unmanageable universe of documents to one susceptible of a manual search. Some relevant documents might be missed, but the question was whether a reasonable and proportionate search had been conducted. Perhaps the most important point for practical purposes was the judge's comment that neither party had engaged with each other to agree a search methodology and search terms before the manual review was conducted, and that was a failing on both sides. So that's a clear message to parties conducting any disclosure exercise. Thanks, Chris. 
There still haven't been a lot of reported decisions under the disclosure pilot, so, so that's helpful to give a flavour of where the courts are going. Um, can you talk us through your own experience of the pilot? Clearly, there are differing views on how the pilot should be operated. So, for example, there's the requirement the part, that the parties, and ultimately the court, specify what model of disclosure should be applied for each of the issues for disclosure that have been identified, rather than just setting one overall disclosure methodology. The intention is that this leads to a more tailored approach, so that ultimately there is less disclosure and what there is is focused on the key areas. But in practice, this can lead to a more convoluted and difficult process. For example, in a recent hearing I was involved in, the court was concerned that the nature of the case meant that the use of search terms against a detailed list of disclosure issues, as required by the pilot, was not suitable. This led the court to conclude that despite both parties seeking to follow the guidance in the pilot, the pilot had produced an outcome which neither side was satisfied with. Ultimately, further disclosure was ordered in that case. Notwithstanding that, there are of course some judges who are very supportive, so we'll have to wait to see what happens at the end of the year when the pilot is due to end. Yes, there's been a survey of court users aimed at assessing the pilot's impact in practice, and no doubt there'll be more opportunities for feedback before the year end. Hopefully all of that will then be taken on board in determining the set of rules we end up with on a permanent basis. So that's it for today's podcast. We'll be back with a second edition in a couple of months. Thank you to Maura and to Chris and to all of you for listening. Any feedback is gratefully received, particularly as this is a new format for us. So please do get in touch by email if you have suggestions for improvement. Our contact details are on the podcast page.